Vince, will you finish up? So again, thank you everybody for joining us today. Um, I have a number of announcements, so I'm just going to get started before we start the Q&A. Um, so again, thank you to Jody and Amy uh, for joining us to speak about ecological grief. Um, I certainly learned a lot, and it's something I've been talking to them about for a while now, so it was, uh, it was a great experience. Um, we'll invite everybody to uh, come up shortly, so start thinking of your questions if you have them, but in the meantime, um, some thoughts from SACPA and uh, announcements of coming events. So SACPA is continuing to modernize its website. Uh, we know that the website is increasing numbers of visitors, but we don't know how people are using the website, uh, such as what kind of information they're looking for or how often they're visiting. And so recently, uh, we recently launched a survey about the website use. And uh, so if you're able to complete that uh, survey on the SACPA website, um, it only takes about five minutes and it's available until the end of December. Uh, it would be very helpful if you or others could uh, complete that website or sorry, complete that survey on the website, uh, which is, what is it, SACPA, what is it called? What's the website? SACPA.ca, thank you. <laughs> uh, we also have an announcement um, from, that says, Dear friends of late Van Christou, the Van Christou family would like to extend a warm welcome to you and your friends to join us for the opening reception Saturday afternoon, November 24th, between 2 and 10 p.m. for the exhibition and sale of Van's photographic works and to share his enthusiasm for life, art, and the beauty of Southern Alberta. The exhibition will take place at Trinon Gallery, which is at 104 Fifth Street South, the corner um, across from Park Place Mall and Galt Gardens, upstairs of the new uh, Taro restaurant. Um, the exhibition will be on from the 24th until the 15th during working hours from 9 till 5 p.m., 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And proceeds will support educational programs in the arts through Allied Arts Council of Lethbridge. So that's a wonderful opportunity. Okay, so SACPA has three sessions coming up this week. Um, real busy week. <laughs> uh, on Monday at lunch, where are we? Hold on, I put them in the wrong order. Okay, Monday at lunch, the, we have a SACPA topic. Uh, it, is it the right time to build a new trade center at Exhibition Park uh, with speakers Rudy Friesen and Michael Wurchel? Wurchel? Uh, Monday evening, we have David Kahn, the leader of the Alberta Liberal Party, speaking about... Oh, that's Thursday. Sorry. I'm in the wrong order. Okay. Monday lunch, Trade Center at Exhibition Park. Monday evening, uh, religious rights and freedom of conscience, are they always compatible with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? By Katarina Stevens, Jeffrey Cap, and James Linville. That one will take place 7 until 9 p.m., Monday evening at the um, library's community room upstairs. If you haven't been to that room yet, it's really beautiful. Um, so go enjoy that. And then Thursday, regular time, SACPA uh, will be with, the, with David Kahn, leader of the Alberta Liberal Party, uh, with the topic, Alberta Politics, Budgets and Pipelines, the Alberta Liberal Party Perspective. Okay, so lots of SACPA opportunities next week. All right, so... Um, a reminder that this session for Q&A will be recorded and available as a podcast on the SACPA website. And while you're there, you can fill out the survey. Um, and so I will love to invite, oh, there they are, Amy and Jody to join us. And I'll invite people to the mics. Uh, 
A reminder that only short and topical comments will be tolerated ahead of one or two respectful questions. Um, in the interest of all of our time and hearing everybody's questions and feedback, um, I will respectfully remind you if we're needing to wrap up some commentary, okay? Um, and please uh, just take your seat after you ask your question and then the uh, uh, presenters can respond. Okay, awesome, we have a question. Uh, thank you, Joni and Amy, for a, uh, a topic. As we learn more about the state of the world, will perhaps overwhelm us if we don't deal with some of the coping mechanisms. And that's something I'd like both of you to address because you both dealt with the ghost community and, and their response to what happened in their backyard. In terms of uh, you know, the video, for example, that the young couple put together, and mobilizing action elsewhere, I think would be most useful to help people understand that there are responses to grief. Lauren Fitch. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll start just a little bit because I was living in the ghost community when the clear cut happened. And so I was living and working at a retreat center and one of the responses was, was that the community kind of came out for an evening. We did dinner together and we talked as a community about our grief. And then we walked the labyrinth together and also walked down to the river together. And so part of it is that, that opportunity to be together in our grief. And when, when we grieve and we don't feel that we have permission to talk about it, it can isolate us in our communities and it can isolate us in our feelings and create depression and create despair as eco despair as Amy was talking about. So that's one of the things that um, the community did. As you mentioned, there was also a documentary that was created. And so that community was really able to mobilize. They started a website called Stop Ghost Clearcut, and now it's been renamed to the uh, Ghost Community Association, I believe. And one of their major approaches, they had an organizer who was very concerned about division. And she very much said, we're gonna all get through this together as a community. So our decisions about how we organize need to be done together. So they were really able to band together kind of throughout so something that could have been a potentially very divisive issue. Um, the very end of it, this will be my last comment on this, but the very end of the clear cut, Amy and I were actually asked to come out to the ghost community and to lead a ritual and a ceremony with them. And so we partnered with um, the Stony Nakoda people because a lot of their land was connected to the clear cut too. And they came in and did a pipe ceremony for us in the midst of the clear cut. And then we did something that we call a Karen of mourning, which is you spend about 20 minutes in the clear cut. Um, people go and they grieve and they also think about what they're taking with them and what they've learned. And then we come back and we created a Karen together and spent some time kind of ritualizing the grief and looking at how do we move forward together. From there, we had a dinner together and a bit of a celebration of what the community had become together. And so I think that was a really lovely way to say, okay, this happened, we're mourning it, and we're gonna move forward too together. So yeah, do you have anything? Hello, <clears throat> my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, Ecological grief can be categorized uh, many different ways. Of course, there's, there's uh, people building on the edge of danger uh, is probably one way of calling ecological grief. And as climate change uh, makes uh, floods and uh, 
fires, even worse, of course, some areas there was never thought to be a dangerous place to live it has become so. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, self-inflicted ecological grief versus uh, climate change uh, making, it, making it even worse? I, I really appreciate that question. I think that's interesting, and it's something I wanted to talk about and didn't have time. So um, this idea of self-inflicted grief, right, or self-inflicted pain, and I sort of touched on that when we said we have the highest carbon footprint, but what was interesting is um, in Western society, we have a very um, divisive nature-culture binary, and so we think of human spaces as different than ma um, na uh, natural spaces. I didn't talk about this, did I? Okay, um, and so, I, and I do it throughout the talk, right? I talked about, I would go out in nature, right? But we, if you really think about it, we are nature, right? And so that, that binary um, kind of binds us. But what we found is that um, people actually can process natural events a lot easier, or they, f they find it easier to grapple with that grief. So when I spoke with people in the valley, they said like, well, we had the flood in 2013, um, and that, like, that's just nature kind of um, healing itself, or nature is resilient, and I don't see that destruction as negative, as much as negative, versus clear-cut logging is something that's done with intent, obviously, right? We, we're part of that system that does that. So I think even in just understanding how we understand change influences how we process it. So if it's human-caused, we actually find it a lot harder to process, probably because we're internalizing that guilt, right? We are part of the society that causes this to happen. Um, and and um, Jerry and I were speaking over lunch, thinking about everyone thinks of this change as different, right? So if you think of foresting, um, of, sorry, harvesting a forest ecosystem as something that is natural, right? You're mimicking a natural regeneration cycle. You're going to think about that differently. So even understanding how one person understands what nature is versus what another person does changes how we think about it. Did I answer your question at all? I feel like I went on a big tangent. Um, yeah, we can talk more. Thank you so much for your talk. I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Yeah, uh, just a comment about binary. <clears throat> I think we can thank um, uh, the division, the false division between uh, human beings and animals which has got a religious basis for creating part of that binary instead of seeing us as part of nature and being really just another mammal. Um, we've elevated ourselves to another, another plateau. Okay, I've experienced ecological grief many times. I think the first time was when we flew over uh, clear-cut for us in BC that one could not see from the road and I realized how we were being duped um, because along the roadways there would be forests for maybe 40 feet <laughs> behind it the clear cut would be hidden. Uh, every time a bird species doesn't arrive in the summer at our place, bluebirds a few years ago, American goldfinch this year, I experience another shock in the pit of my stomach of oh no are they gone? So I, I really appreciate having a term to at least discuss that which, it, which we are feeling. Um, one thing that I know 
works against grieving and against having this dialogue with others is the dominant discourse of the conservatives that denies climate change and denies, 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 denies all the ecological grief that we're going on and stops the discourse. So would you like to comment on <laughs> the dominant discourse and how that impacts our ecological grief? Thank you. I can try, yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I need a day to think about it. Um, I did you want to just uh, touch on what you said at the beginning, actually, around this binary and how um, one place that I find hope in this story is that the binary for the, some of the residents started to break down after um, after they had a term to describe eco-grief. So for one example is um, a two separate um, people spoke about mourning with the environment, mourning with wolves, which is a pretty drastic shift from an analytical perspective of the environment, which I would say the ghost clear-cut group is, is very much focused on facts, and this is why we don't appreciate clear-cut logging versus other forms of logging. So to have two of the members independently mention um, grieving with the wolves, they felt as though they were grieving with the environment, that was a sign to me that um, just by taking the time to um, grieve and think about your connection to the landscape, it actually helps to blur that distinction of you and the landscape. Um, your question about how does the discourse prevent this, I think, or how does the discourse influence how we talk about this, I think that's what I'm trying to sort of wrestle with, is this, this, this hypocrisy that um, how are we allowed to grieve when we're not even allowed to talk about what positive change looks like and that, like I got it, I emailed the um, forestry minister, Minister Forestry, um, to say I'm, I'm concerned about the clear-cut logging that's happening in the Mustang Hills and got this very generic letter back that says we follow all these regulations and actually um, um, clear-cut logging mimics natural wildfires, um, which is simply not true scientifically. When you remove um, uh, trees from a forest ecosystem, that's not the same as experiencing a wildfi wildfire. So I think even sometimes just, um, it's hard, but thinking about how are some of the narratives that are being spoken simply untrue scientifically, and then how are some of them just based on values and emotions? And so thinking about how like ecological grief does not discriminate, everyone can experience that, and we all experience that differently. And so what I hope is that perhaps that language can start to be a um, a point that we can actually come together and say, yeah, like I experience grief for this, you experience grief for this. Now maybe we can perhaps mutually respect each other because um, grief is a very human emotion. I think everyone in this room has probably experienced grief on a number of occasions, not related to the environment. But if, if Jody came to me and said, I'm, I'm grieving the loss of this person, I wouldn't say like, Jody, no, you're not. Like, I know you're not grieving, right? Like, that's something that as soon as you say, I'm grieving, you're allowed to own that. And so hopefully this language around grief, anxiety, um, yeah, helps to break down some of those barriers. I'm not sure if that responds at all. Jody, did you want to add anything? It's hard. I'm working through that every single day, so it's a great question. That, my name is Terry Shellington. Thank you for your comments and for a wonderful, uh, thoughtful presentation. Um, I just have some kind of wonderings to voice and invite your response. 
As I think about the generation, the, the culture we're heading into in the next 10 or 20 years, I imagine it to be exceedingly conflictual uh, with people in our culture in all kinds of different stages of, of uh, grieving from, from outright denial <clears throat> to outright despair and points in between. And <clears throat> I look at the, at the debate going on around Donald Trump and think there's a warning there for us in which different realities and communities have stopped talking to each other and, and just shout across lines. And um, I can see that happening to us. I can see it being very conflictual <coughs> as, <coughs> as people are in these different places of grief or not grief. And uh, it strikes me, as with all conflict resolution and, and grief work, uh, talking with one another is one of the solutions. And I wonder if we don't need to treasure and strengthen um, all the opportunities we have to talk across lines and across experiences um, so that we don't uh, become what we see south of the border in many ways. I wonder. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, the thing that strikes me is that we need to regain this knowledge that we are all interrelated and that we're all interconnected. And I'm not quite sure how we do that without building relationships across those lines. And I think that that is like one of the most important pieces is regaining the sense of like breaking down the binary like you were talking about between us and nature, understanding that what we do to nature, we do to ourselves, but also what we do to our neighbor, we do to ourselves. And so how do we regain a sense of our own understanding that we are connected to each other on this planet? But, thank you. I just had a quick note about language, and I think that's um, really interesting. Is So because I work uh, in post-secondary, I'm the sustainability coordinator, so um, it's really my role to um, promote sustainability within an institution, right, which can be difficult because institutions are made of <laughs> a variety of people. And so um, when I talk about sustainable procurement or purchasing, that's kind of our big project right now, I don't use the word sustainable, I use the word responsible. And so they mean the same thing, in essence, but kind of using language that the other side um, resonates with them. And I, even the other side, that's a poor use of language to say that there's no sides, right? Um, but to begin to sort of say, that language might not work for you, sustainability, a lot of people that doesn't work for you, but the idea of responsibility and having a responsibility or stewardship of the earth that works with people. So trying to find language that might bridge that gap. Um, and I think that that news article about um, farmers experiencing mental distress to me, it doesn't matter if it says eco-grief in there. What we're talking about is people's mental and emotional health related to a changing climate. And so if we can have a conversation, and I don't use the word eco-grief, but it's the same principles that are being shared, I think that's a big win. My name is Mary Shillington. Um, thank you very much, both of you, for, for taking on this issue and uh, doing the education. I had planned to come to your event, but circumstances interfered in the meantime. Um, I worked for 15 years for the Lethbridge Family Services as the major person doing um, bereavement work. And, uh, and it's amaz it always amazed me at how many of the people who came would talk about uh, family members or friends who, who were questioning them grieving. And so the whole idea that, that we are not good at facing grief is, is um, we often really avoid it uh, ourselves, and, and our friends and family do too. So it's not surprising that, that uh, 
we're avoiding eco grief um, because we don't uh, we don't do grief well anyway. Uh, what I found encouraging from you and the rituals that you did uh, there in, in ghost, the ghost community it was that you united together and you also included other groups like the Aboriginal people. And I think we can learn a lot from them and from the appreciation of how we are a whole community, animals, nature, everything, and human beings together. And, and so, um, as a person who works in justice and peace for our church, this is an area that we need to be pursuing. So could you give me a couple of clues about how I could pursue that a little better? <laughs> great That's a great question <laughs> and a really hard one. Um, I don't know that I'm going to have any like detailed answer to that, but what I think I would say is I have learned the most by um, re through relationship, through listening to people who have perspectives different than my own, who have wisdom different than my own. And so by even just being able to be in rooms where people are talking and um, become, like coming into relationship with them and entering into reciprocal relationship. And so I think that's something that we've lost a bit as a people too. Um, when I say like, when I talk about listening, um, that's something I think that is really important, but it's also important then from listening to reciprocate and to have relationships that are respectful and honoring. And I think that's where we have to start. I feel like that's a very basic answer and I apologize, I don't have anything kind of more profound to say, but um, I think listening can be a radical act and moving from listening into action can be a way forward. Oh. Um, Okay, <laughs> and Amy's also asking me. So I'm speaking at um, one of the Unitarian Universalist churches in Edmonton this weekend to talk about refugia, which is the name of our initiative, and to talk about refugia as um, a way to understand peace and to, a way to understand the connection between the personal and the collective. And so um, to unpack that just a little bit, I wanna tell you about what refugia is and why we've chosen the name of refugia. So refugia is a scientific term, and what it refers to is when there were um, ice ages, when Mount St. Helens erupted, when there's massive kind of calamities that happen in the earth, there, I'll use Mount St. Helens as an example. Scientists came in about a year after uh, the eruption, and they expected to not find really any repopulation of species yet. And what they found was that there had been little pockets of what they called safe spaces, where they had created the conditions for life to thrive and flourish. And things repopulated much more quickly because of the refugia. And so um, that's part of like what we're trying to do with our initiative is to create spaces where we can have dialogue, where we can be curious, and where we can ask deep questions of ourselves and of each other. And yeah, I just, yeah, <laughs> that's all. Hi, Leona Jacobs, thank you for your talk, it's great. Um, I have a question, it follows on Terry's comment. Um, it's more of a curiosity, and is it Jody? Yeah, maybe you, it's for you to answer. Um, and that is the question about, so you went through this process of, of reconciling with ecological grief around clear-cutting, but was there actually any reconciliation with 
the perpetrators of the clear cutting? And, and where did you come together around that? Yeah, that's a challenging question. Um, and I need to say like, so I was, um, I lived in the community where the clear cut happened and I was loosely connected to Stop Ghost Clear Cut and what became the Clear Cut Association, or the Ghost River Association. Um, because of the work I was doing, I didn't often have the opportunity. Um, so one of the things that the community did do though, is they really um, kind of, I guess, force is not the right word, but they really invited over and over again the sawmill and the organization to come in and to dialogue with them. And there was quite a lot of dialogue, and I believe the sawmill is actually better now at um, having dialogue with the community. It was an ongoing issue, and there was a lot of frustration around it. Initially, a lot of um, the consultation that the sawmill would do would be at times that didn't make sense for members of the community to come. And often, it wouldn't be, um, advertised anywhere so people wouldn't find out about it till after it had happened and so the community really advocated over and over for the sawmill to come in and do a lot of consultation with them um, there were members from the sawmill who came out and walked the property and changed where some of the um, the clear-cut lines were going to go um, because of the advocation of the community so yeah it, I wouldn't say there was a lot of reconciliation there but there was some working together this will just be our last question. Uh, name's Doug Neal. And I used to live <clears throat> in the middle of the Bel Air Forest in Manitoba. And we did have a paper mill there. Well, they're not using paper so much anymore. We've got these things. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we uh, <clears throat> had problems with clear cutting. Um, they would do like the other lady said and leave a bunch so you couldn't see it from the road and they would do a lot of clear cutting for this mill and <clears throat> I never really looked at um, seeing this clear cutting as grieving I looked at it as anger and there was uh, more people a lot angrier now is there a difference between anger and grieving um, <laughs> we uh, <clears throat> we did involve <clears throat> a lot of organizations and we planted thousands of trees every year but uh, <clears throat> that kind of grieving you can do something about when you lose a, a family member there's nothing you can do about that but with this other kind of grieving, you can really do something about it. But the difference between anger and grieving is, maybe you talk about that. I'll speak quickly to that and then I'll let Amy. But um, I think that anger and grief often go hand in hand. And that anger can often be a mask for grief because it is a more socially acceptable emotion. Um, having said that, I think that both can propel us into action and into um, movement and solidarity. And so I think they're both really important emotions, but I, I do find that they're often tied. Um, when the clear cut was happening um, and I was living in the area of the ghost, 
for me, it often felt like both. And on any given day, I felt very angry or very overwhelmed and emotional. And so for me, my experience has often been that I can hardly parse them apart. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that, but I think it's a great question. Um, the only really comment I have is that grief is more than an emotion. Grief is an experience. Grief is, um, grief is a thousand emotions in one. So just to kind of reiterate what, what you yourself and Jody have said is I think anger is part of grief, but perhaps what leads to eco-despair is that feeling of that anger goes nowhere, right? Or you don't see a response to that anger. Um, or perhaps that anger is festering. So I think anger is one dimension of grief, and just remember that grief, um, grief is one very short word to describe a very complex experience. And I remember even in my, um, uh, my thesis application when I was submitting it, I used the term grief, like the emotion of grief, and my supervisor said, that doesn't make sense because grief is not an emotion, grief is an experience of of emotions and someone else said this to me over lunch like grief happens over it can happen over a day or it can happen over 20 years like it's not something that you can um, put boundaries around so that's basically the only thing I would respond so thank you Canute is trying to make me look like a bad moderator <laughs> fast question fast answer <laughs> uh, it, it can be argued that we're lucky to live in a part of the world where we can talk about these things versus uh, a large part of the rest of the world where it creates death and destruction and massive amounts of refugees. Uh, that's a whole different level of ec ecological grief. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the privilege of grief, I think, is really important to name, and I think um, at, at my work at the college, um, Bow Valley College is extremely diverse. We have students from over 140 countries represented there. And so the students that I work alongside on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of them are climate refugees. <laughs> we don't necessarily label them as climate refugees yet, but I think a lot of them are, are refugees due to a change in climate. And I spoke with an instructor there uh, several months ago, and she said, um, being able to advocate for these students that might be experiencing eco-grief and using that language is perhaps where our role is, right? Being able to kind of communicate to a wider population that when you are um, essentially forced out of your own country and are trying to resettle, um, there's a lot of complex grief tied into that, right? You're grieving your family, your homeland. Um, um, there, I, I've never been a refugee, so I can't even begin to imagine what that's like, but, um, I think, yeah, again, naming that privilege that we're kind of at the epicenter of where a lot of this pain is rippling out from. And so if we can't even begin to talk about it, um, yeah, I don't know where else to begin. Uh, as an environmentalist, um, when I graduated, people always told me, why are you working in Alberta? Like, you should go to BC where all your friends are. It's like, <laughs> this is where the work needs to happen, right? This is where, um, yeah, this is where we need to understand that there are a lot of people doing this work. So. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a privilege to be able to say, I'm grieving this, not only is this destroying my home. So, you add Perfect. Thank you, Jody and Amy. Um, thank you, everybody, for your great questions. Uh, thank you for your attendance today. Thank you for joining us for this hard conversation. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation tonight. Um, 
It starts at 6 p.m. at the library at the community room. Um, there are still spaces available. Please feel free to join us. Um, and we'll continue this conversation and, and go a little deeper on what it might mean for you. Uh, so 